0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty. Please stand
1: for the reading of the word. This morning's scripture is found in Colossians chapter 2. We'll begin reading at verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, and established in your faith, Just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore... No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink in respect of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, Inflating without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, why, as if you were living in this world, do you submit yourself to the decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are the matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and self-treatment of the body and are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God.
2: Happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. It's hard to imagine that something like this needs to be said, or that something like this is even controversial, but if you have ever biologically fathered a child, you are a male human being. That's the way that works. But happy Father's Day. I am very fortunate, I say this every year at Father's Day, I'm very fortunate that I was raised by a really good father. And he taught my brother and I how to be grown-up adult human males that are responsible people who act responsibly in our society, who go to work every day, who take care of their family. My dad ingrained that in me. And when he was in the process of ingraining it in me, I didn't think it was that much fun, but I sure am glad (laughs) that it happened because he was a, a very good man, and I miss him every single day. Now, for the folk on the internet, I need to tell you what's gonna happen over the next couple of weeks because people are going to start writing emails to me that I'm not going to see Asking me where the next two weeks of messages are so understand our process You're going to get today's mp3 and it'll be up online by the end of the day just like always But next week next Sunday. I will be on my way to mesquite, Texas And I will be missing two Sundays here at GCA when I get home then I will post those messages to the internet. But since I'm the person who does the cleaning up, the making of the MP3s, the posting of those messages, when I'm not here to do it, then there's no new message that week. So I promise, I guarantee that next week, next Sunday, the emails are going to start, hey, where's the new message? And then the next week, did you all die? Where did you all go? We haven't heard from you in two weeks. So I'm telling you now that you're not going to hear two weeks worth of messages till I get back. So that was for the internet, folks. Meanwhile, there are literally thousands of hours of MP3 teaching on our website. Go to the listen link and check the archive. If you need something to listen to, there's plenty there. I'm sure you will survive the couple of weeks of messages that will show up when I get back. So I'm very grateful to the men of GCA. They are willing to stand here in my absence, and they will do a fine job. I am completely certain of it. So yes, I'm headed for Texas, because the stars at night are big and bright. In Texas. Oh, there it is. Deep in the heart of and that's where I'm going, deep in the heart of Texas, into Mesquite, Texas, for the Sovereign Grace Bible Conference there. I'll be teaching on Tuesday and Wednesday morning, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Going to see some old friends and new, so I'm looking forward to it. Turn to Galatians 3. As we have been pulling apart Paul's argument and digging into the details... I feel sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes we miss the flow of Paul's impeccable logic by looking at the details. And so I am going to read from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to verse 18, which is where we're really going to get into the new stuff for this morning. And along the way, I will attempt not to comment, but there are a couple of concepts that you're going to need to understand and get a hold of in order to understand what's coming up in later chapters. So I will take a little bit of time to mention that. Chapter 3, verse 1 of the book of Galatians, you unthinking Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain. So does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Here's the first concept I want you to hold on to. The Greek word translated sons is a very standard word. Huios is the word. But here Paul makes reference to the fact that those who have faith in what God has revealed the same way that Abraham did, that they are reckoned as the Huios, the sons of Abraham. So how is it, that you come to faith in Christ and become sons. Well, in chapter 4, Paul is going to dig into that a little deeper, and he's going to use the word huiothesia. And what the word technically means is son placement. In other words, Paul is arguing that we become sons of God by God himself placing us in the position of sonship. It always goes back to God. He is always the first cause. It always goes back to grace. It's not because of our works. It's not because of our flesh. It's not because we're just such darn groovy people. It's because he himself, for his own purposes, by his own grace, placed us in the family, adopted us, son placement is an important concept to remember here as you see Paul talking about us being sons of God, sons of Abraham, even that you don't get to take credit for. Even that is something that God is doing by granting you, giving you the faith so that you will believe in the finished work of Christ. Now, secondly... We see the word believed here. And in a moment, he's even going to refer to Abraham as Abraham the believer. That is an English translation of a Greek term that I think sometimes confuses people. We live in a very pluralistic society right now where you're not allowed to tell anybody that what they think or what they believe is wrong. Simply by virtue of the fact that they believe it, you're supposed to give credibility to them. If they believe that they are a different gender than their birth gender, you have to not only believe them, but play along with their delusion, use their pronouns. Why? Because they believe it. Okay, that's that English word, believe. The Greek word for faith is pistis. Variations of that word like pistuo, which is the verb form of it, we don't have an English verb for the word faith. We don't have the word faithing, which we should have. And if we had that word, that's how this would be translated. It would be translated as faithing. Now, in the Bible, faith is a very specific focus. Faith is specific, it's not generic, it's not left up to you to decide what it is that you're going to have faith in. The Bible's very clear, what Abraham believed was what God told him. God told him, you're going to get this land, you're going to have all these offspring, and through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Abraham believed that, God counted it to him as righteousness. And so when Paul uses the word believe, it's easy for us to think in that generic English kind of mindset and think, well, he, he just drummed up the belief. He looked at it, gathered it, and decided that it was valid. That's, that's not what's being talked about here. We're talking about a firm conviction, which is what pistis means, a firm conviction that something is so true that you can hang your eternity on it. That's very different than, well, I just believe stuff. The Bible is specific. Faith, biblical faith, saving faith, is faith in what God has said and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So whenever you see Paul using this word believe or believer or he believed, in your mind, substitute faithing, because that's the real word. The real word is They were holding as accurate the word of God, what God had revealed to them, and they were putting their body on it, and they were trusting their eternity to it. That's what faith does. My favorite definition of faith is standing on the word of God and reckoning it as more true than your circumstances. Because sometimes the circumstances of life can make it look like The word of God just isn't working. For instance, we know that God is high and holy and sovereign, and the world is stupid. Okay, so how do you reconcile those two? Well, you have to go back and say, what I know is the Bible says that he's in charge, he's sovereign, and this is all happening according to his plan. And even though that's difficult for me to wrap my head around, I'm going to stand on it and reckon it as true Despite what I see, despite the world, despite my circumstances. Have you ever found yourself thinking, I know the Bible says that God loves me, but it sure doesn't feel like love right now. Okay, that's a good place where faith kicks in, where you have to stand on the word of God and say what I know for sure is God loves me too much not to do what is bringing him the greatest amount of glory and not to do for me what brings about my greatest good. So this suffering, this difficulty that I'm going through has to comport to the bigger plan of a sovereign God. Okay, that's faith. See the difference? It's very different than belief because belief in this pluralistic society is whatever anybody wants to say reality is. And that's not faith. Even so, Abraham, faithed God. Actually, back in the Hebrew, he ammoned God. It's the word from which we get "Amen." He amened God. He listened to what God said and said, "Yeah, verily it shall be so." Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure, says verse 7, that it is those who are of faith who are the quios, the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preach the gospel beforehand. I told you that's a single word in the Greek. What it means is good news because God knew what he was going to do. Therefore, he told Abraham in advance what good thing he was going to do. And that is just reckoned here by four words, preach the gospel beforehand. But well, what it means is that God knew that he was going to justify Gentiles by faith, which I will add is really good news Amen. to know that you are justified by faith and not by the works of the law through your flesh, which you cannot do. It's really good news to know that God by faith is going to allow Gentiles to be saved by the Jewish Messiah. Okay, so when God preached that to Abraham... He told him, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. That's really good news. Through your seed, through your offspring, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Thereby, he preached that good news beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith, pistis, are blessed along with Abraham, the believer. That word is pistos, a one-letter difference. So I would render that as Abraham, the father, because he's the one who's actively having faith in what God has told him. Now, remember a moment ago, I said that my favorite definition of faith is standing on the word of God despite your circumstances. Think about Abraham's circumstances, because he argued those circumstances with God. God said, through your offspring, through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And Abraham said, okay, great, great plan. Have you noticed I have no children? And I'm really old, and my wife is past childbearing years, and you're telling me, That through my offspring, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. He even says, look, this guy, Eliezer, who is a servant in my household, he's my heir. He's going to inherit everything because I don't have any children. And God says, no, it's going to be a child of promise. It's going to come from you and Sarah. Everything about Abraham's circumstances said that's impossible. And yet, because God said it, he believed it. And God counted that to him for righteousness. So then those who are of pistus are blessed with Abraham the pistos. Verse 10. For as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything that is written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What blessing is he talking about? The blessing of Abraham, which was, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Through you, even Gentiles are going to come to faith in Christ Jesus. And so Christ took on the curse for us, became a curse for us, hung on the cross for us, in order that in Christ Jesus, that blessing from Abraham would actually come true, would actually be accomplished. That it is through Christ that the promise, through you all nations will be blessed, that promise then is satisfied, comes true, is spread out to all the families of the earth so that the Gentiles would also come to faith in Christ so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through pistis, through faith. See how specific Pauline faith is? Paul does not say, believe stuff. Now you decide what stuff. You, you decide which stuff you're going to believe. Instead, he says, the Bible is very specific about what Christianity is, what Christianity teaches, how Christianity presents itself, and therefore you are called to believe, to have faith in everything God has revealed about what Christianity is. You don't get to make up your own version of Christianity. You don't get to make up your own version of how you think God is, what God likes, what God would be like if you could invent him. Instead, God is how he is. Christ did what he did, and you are called to have faith, complete confidence, I mean, eternal confidence to the point where you're able to just throw yourself out into eternity, knowing that you're going to be okay before God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and everything that he did. That's faith. You don't get to make up what you're going to have faith in. Verse 15. Now. Paul, in verse 16, I know I'm at 15, in verse 16, he's going to use the word seeds, and then he's going to use the word seed. He's going to speak of it in plural, and he's going to speak of it as singular. The Greek word is sperma. If that sounds familiar, it has made its way right into the English language to speak of the seed that comes from a human male creature. So now Paul is going to argue about that seed. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham. Notice he said promises. What were the promises that were spoken to Abraham? Yes, it was through you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, Through your seed, through your progeny, through your offspring, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. But the promise also included, I'm going to give you this land in perpetuity, it belongs to you and your descendants after you as an everlasting covenant. Those are the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring because the land was given to his offspring as an eternal covenant. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his sperma, to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. So what Paul is making very clear is that Abraham, once he had that child of promise, from there Abraham then had uh, Isaac, which means laughter, and then they, they had Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and then 12 sons from that, who became the 12 progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. Even though every one of those could be called the sperma, the seed, the offspring of Abraham, none of them were the designated one through whom all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. That's the distinction Paul is making, that there are a whole lot of Israelites and Jews even to this day on the planet, but they're not that one that God was specifically referring to when he said, through your particular seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So Paul makes sure that everyone knows exactly who it is that is the fulcrum, who is the deciding factor, who is the very one, the promised one, through whom all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It's not referring to many, it's referring to one in particular, and to your seed, that is Christ. Verse 17, what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant, does not invalidate a covenant that was previously ratified by God. Because a moment ago he said, any covenant, even if it's just a man's covenant, once it's been ratified, nobody changes it, nobody adds conditions to it. Well, then if the Abrahamic covenant could be altered by the law covenant, then that would be taking a covenant that was already ratified and making alterations to it. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. What did I tell you the promise was just a moment ago? The promise was... Yeah, there's a land promise and there's a seed promise. And all of that is the promise. And here the coming of the law and the eradication of the law in Christ Jesus does not in any way change, alter, do away with, nullify any aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. Because as I keep saying, the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant that God made with himself. And if God were to change the terms of the promise that he made to Abraham, that would mean God changed. And the Bible says repeatedly that God does not change. And you don't want God to change. You don't want God to say, you're fine, you're good, you're coming to hell. You know what? You did that. And now that you did that, I changed my mind. Never mind, I've given up on you. No, you want a God who consistently says, I don't change. By my grace, I have chosen you from the beginning. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's the God you need. But if that's the God who is, then no portion of the Abrahamic covenant has been changed in any way because it was unconditional to begin with. And that means all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Abraham. Paul says the particular one is Christ and it also means that that land belongs to Israel to this very moment because God said so. And no part of that has changed. If the inheritance says verse 18, if the inheritance, what inheritance? The land. If the The land inheritance was based on the law, then it's no longer based on a promise. So, now what Paul is going to start comparing is this idea of a promise made or fulfillment because of people doing things necessary to fulfill some condition like the law that would ultimately get them that inheritance. The first place that Paul is starting is saying the promise that God made to Abraham was indeed a promise, and that means it can't have any conditions on it. And if you say the Abrahamic covenant is going to be fulfilled as long as Israel does such and such, as long as Israel keeps the law, Well, then it's no longer a promise. You've abolished the notion of promise by saying it's conditional. Look, if I promise you something, Micah, I promise to give you 20 bucks when we're done with the service today, okay? I promise. I'm gonna do that. As long as you run a four minute mile before I'm finished preaching. Okay, so at first it sounded like I meant it. And then I put a condition on it. And you all chuckled, because you knew that the condition was an impossible condition. I'm guessing you can't run a four-minute mile? Probably not. Probably not. What I did was I made him a promise. But then I put a condition on it. Well, that's what Paul is saying. If God said to Abraham, I promise you something. I've made you a promise. And then later, the law came along 430 years later and the conditionality of that law affected the promise that God had already made, then that nullifies the promise. So Paul is arguing, because God made it on the basis of a promise, you can't change it. Listen to him say it. For if the inheritance is based on law, then it is no longer based on a promise but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. That means no conditions. It's going to happen based on the character of God because he's the one that made the promise. So why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. In other words, Israel was becoming guilty before God, but they didn't realize how guilty they truly were before God, so God laid out a law in front of them, starting with 10 commandments, adding 613 ordinances, and he said, this is what you're going to look like, this is how you're going to behave, these are your rules for everyday life, and these are your rules for your interaction with me, that's the law and you are required to live by it and at Mount Sinai Israel collectively said everything that the Lord has spoken we will do okay they made a conditional covenant with each other God laid out the covenant Israel agreed to the terms of the covenant that is a conditional covenant why the law then it was added because of transgressions But then look at this. It's such interesting language. Paul says, and it was ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Okay, so we know Moses was the mediator. God told Israel, stay off my mountain. Build a fence around the mountain. If even a dog touches my mountain, you're going to have to put a dart through him, kill him. Nothing unholy can touch my holy mountain while I'm on it. Send Moses up to me. Okay, so Moses was the mediator. So he was up there on behalf of human beings doing the mediating. And then it also says that it was ordained through angels. So God also used means in order to accomplish it. Now, this is all in contrast with the fact that God made a promise to Abraham face-to-face. It was just Abraham and God. And God made a promise to him face-to-face. But where the law was concerned, it didn't look like, it didn't act like, it didn't have the characteristics of a promise from God. Instead, what it had was a mediator. Instead, what it had was Angels ordained to accomplish these things. It wasn't face-to-face. God was up on the mountain. Israel was down making their golden calf. There was no face-to-face interaction. So Paul draws that parallel in order to show the difference between a promise and the law. The law was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until there's a particular until to the law. The law was in force until because the law had a very particular starting point and a very particular ending point. And it ended when the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Paul already told you who that is. Paul already told you that's Christ. He's the one the promise was made to. Through him, the promise was fulfilled. Through him, Gentiles have come to faith in God. Through him, Gentiles are being saved by God. And when he came, the law was no longer in force over the mind and conscience of God's people. The law had a beginning place at Mount Sinai, and it had a termination point at Calvary. Then, now that he's introduced this concept of a mediator, how Moses went up and mediated on behalf of the people, and how angels mediated on the part of God, he says, now a mediator is not for one party only, but God is only one. What he's getting at here is when he gave the law in order to demonstrate that it's not a promise, there were mediators involved. There was somebody there on behalf of people, and there was somebody there on behalf of God, and there was mediation going on between them. But when God spoke to Abraham, it was God making the promise by himself. He's the one who formed the covenant by himself. It's an unconditional covenant that God himself established, therefore, no mediator. Because you don't need a mediator for one person. Look, if you're suing somebody, if you're taking somebody to court, the court will very often tell you that they expect you to go through mediation first. And that is the two sides in the lawsuit get together in a room with a neutral third party and you try to iron out some kind of agreement between the two of you. But has anybody ever been sent to court mediation by themselves? You go get a mediator and see if you can work out you. No, that's called a psychiatrist. That's a completely different thing. Now, nobody needs a mediator all by themselves. That's what Paul is saying. Saying, look at the difference between the promise and the law. The promise. God did it all by himself. You don't need a mediator. But at Sinai, there were mediators because there were two sides to it because it was a conditional covenant. And it was agreed on by both sides. And then one side broke it. So then what was God going to do? Was he going to lose his people for their sin and rebellion in breaking the law before him? What was he going to do? No, he sent the seed, the very one who he promised all the way back at the Abrahamic promise that he was going to come. He was going to redeem those people. He would pay for their sin debt, thereby accomplishing all the promises that God had made unconditionally in the first place. It's a great plan. It also proves that God knows exactly what people are like. Because he set up a law that he knew they weren't going to be able to do just so he could hold everybody guilty so that salvation would be by grace through Jesus Christ. Jew or Gentile, whoever you are, male or female, free or bond, rich or poor, whoever you are, it is only through Christ that anybody gets to God because everybody's guilty. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary? That word is against. Is it fighting against the promises of God? He says, may it never be. But here's the point. If a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would be indeed based on the law. In other words, he's saying, the reason that God gave the law was to demonstrate how sinful sinfulness actually was. So that people would know that they were rebelling against God, that they were trespassing against God, that they were constantly missing that mark. They wouldn't know that had God not given them the law. That was the purpose of the law. And then Paul says, had God ever made a law that he intended to use to save people? Had he ever made a law whereby actual human righteousness could be completed? Well, then by that law, people could be saved. But God never made that kind of law. Instead, he made a law that holds people guilty so that he could be gracious to people. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? God forbid. May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on that law. But the scriptures have shut up everybody under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Micah, since I picked on you a moment ago, look up Romans 3.9. Here again, this is just consistent Pauline theology. Paul says that the purpose of the law was to demonstrate that everybody was less than God. To prove that God is high and holy and righteous and that all human beings fail to live up to that righteous standard. Therefore, all men are considered sinners so that God can be gracious to all kinds of men. Read that for us, Micah. Romans 3, 9.
1: What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we are already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin.
2: Jews, Greeks, all men. Paul says the whole point of the law was to show that everybody is under sin. He brings it up here in the Galatian letter because it's consistent Pauline theology that the purpose of the law was never to justify anybody but to demonstrate that everybody, Jew and Gentile, law keepers and not law keepers, circumcised and uncircumcised, doesn't matter who you are, you're guilty. And God did that on purpose so that he could demonstrate his grace in salvation so that Christ would get all the glory in salvation. The scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, who who are faithing, who are exercising faith. Those are the ones who are going to, by faith in Jesus Christ, receive promises from God. Verse 23. Now, I think in verse 23, Paul is talking particularly to his Jewish brethren and about his own Jewish heritage. When he says we here, he's talking about those who were actually under the law. And here's what he says. Before faith came, which means that once Christ came, this knowledge of salvation by grace through faith became a reality. Before then we were only, we we Jews in particular, we Israel, we only had the law. That was our only communication from God. The only thing God had told us so far about himself and about our behavior was the law. That's all we had. But then faith came. Salvation by grace through faith came. And that was cataclysmic. That changed everything. But before faith came... We were kept in custody under the law, great word. Good translation, to custody. We were locked up. We were under lock and key. We didn't have a choice. If a cop ever comes and puts you in custody, he limits your freedom, and you only get to do what the cop tells you to do, because you're in custody. Same idea. All the Jews had was the law, and by the law, all they got to do was what the law said as they were under custody to the law before faith came we were kept in custody under the law being shut up being held back being kept away being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed So while the law was in effect among Israel, they had to follow the law, and it was not revealed to them yet until Christ came, until Christ died, until the apostles were sent out to preach the good news, they didn't know that they could accomplish righteousness before God through faith. And notice, too, that had to be revealed to them. Because let's be honest, you'd have never figured that out. No, you're going to try as hard as you can to do the law because you're in custody to the law. You're locked up under the law. You've got to do the law. And then faith came. What a glorious day. Yes, indeed. Jesus Christ walked on the planet and started preaching the good news, the gospel that he himself was going to be the sin sacrifice sufficient to pay for the sins of all God's people, You wouldn't have figured that out. That had to be revealed until faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, the NASB says. It's the word pedagogos. And in a Greek household, the pedagogos was a slave who was responsible for educating the children. Sometimes, if there was a class held somewhere, the pedagogos would take them by the hand and take them to class and bring them back home. Sometimes he would tutor them himself, educate them and teach them. That was the pedagogos. You may know the English word that still exists, pedagogical. If you are teaching people, instructing people, then you are acting pedagogical. I have been accused several times of being pedagogical. They say it like they don't know what it means. I wear it proudly. (laughs) Well, yeah, pedagogical, sure. And so he says that the law was like that household slave who was responsible for the education of the children. He was the pedagogos. He was the tutor. Hold on to that concept because the law has become our tutor for what purpose? To lead us to Christ. That's what the education was. The education of the law was to teach you your incapability so that you understood that you couldn't be righteous before God so that you would realize you needed a savior. So that when the Messiah came, you'd say, oh, thank God for the Messiah because I've been trying to do this law and I just can't. And if the law is the basis of my justification, I'm a dead man. But the whole purpose of the law was not to save anybody. It wasn't to make anybody righteous. It was to act as a tutor in order to lead us to Christ so that we can be justified by peace to spy faith. But now that faith has come, boy, I like that now right there. But now, that was in Paul's time, it's right now too, at this very moment. Now, faith has come, and so we no longer are under the tutor. Oh, what good news. Paul just said we're no longer under the law, because there's no law that can save you. There's no law that can justify you. There's no law that can redeem you, and Christ can do all of that. Therefore, have faith in Jesus Christ. You don't need the law. It was there to lead you to Christ. Now that you're at Christ, you don't need that law that brought you to it. In fact, once you grow up in a Greek household, you don't need your tutor anymore. Same idea. The law in the household of Israel was for the purpose of growing them up and leading them to Christ. And then the tutor was out of business. You understand Paul's attitude toward the law? His description of the law is Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He's the satisfaction of the law. But he is also the one that the Abrahamic covenant was pointing at. Through him, all the families of the earth and the Gentiles come to faith in the finished work of Christ. And none of that, none of that, none of that, not any of that goose egg, not a none of that is the law. You got it? I was trying to be emphatic and pedagogical. Okay. (laughs) Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. For you are all sons of God. Through faith in Christ Jesus. You are not only the sons of Abraham through faith, but you are now the sons of God. That is why we talked about Huios a few minutes ago and Huiothesia, because in chapter four, Paul is going to explain to us how we became the sons of God. Even the fact that we are the children of God is not because of us, not because of our action, not because of our work. We are the children of God because God Himself placed us in sonship. I'm nearly done. Sorta, of, kinda. Look, I won't be here for the next couple of weeks, so just back up off me, man. That's all I'm saying. For you are all. Sons of God. Through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you. Who were baptized. Into Christ. Have clothed yourself with Christ. You've covered yourself with Christ. You're wearing Christ now. Through your life. And if Christ is your covering. If Christ is your clothing. Then that is sufficient. To cover your nakedness, to cover your exposing, to cover the fact that you are sinful, that you are depraved, the same way that Adam and Eve, as soon as they realized they were sinners, they realized they were naked and got busy making fig leaves and trying to cover up their own nakedness. It's the same idea here with Paul, that you need to be clothed in some way. You need to be covered in some way. You are a sinner before God, and if God looks on you directly, you need to be covered in some way. And so how are you going to be covered? Are you going to do the Adam and Eve thing? Are you going to get busy with your own works, the works of your own hand? Are you going to start sewing your fig leaves together and covering yourself in that and saying, well, God, at least I'm not naked now. Well, your works aren't sufficient to cover you. Instead, at your point of baptism, at your point of a public declaration of your affiliation and faith with Christ, at that point, Christ covers you. You put on Christ as your clothing so that you can walk before God unashamed because Christ himself is your covering. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, and there's no distinction to it. It doesn't matter who you are. Through all these years of saying this, through all these years of teaching this, through all these years of teaching this, I've had people say to me, yeah, but you don't know me. You don't know where I've been? You don't know what I've done. If you really knew me, you'd know there's no hope for me. Paul's about to say, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Doesn't matter if you're male or female. Notice there's only two. I just thought I'd point that out. It doesn't matter if you're free, if you're a slave. In Colossians 3:11, he goes so far as to say, it doesn't matter if you're a barbarian or a Scythian. That means it doesn't matter if you're well educated in Greek culture or if you're just a barbarian who knows nothing about culture. Doesn't matter. Faith in Christ is all that matters. What did the thief on the cross know? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. That's all he knew. And so there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I have to make a quick theological point here. We are all in Christ, correct? Yes. Okay. Okay. Can we still tell the difference between a male and a female? Yes. Yes. Better hope we can. Yeah, we can still tell the difference between male and female. And Paul still knows that distinction, especially when he's talking about the division of authority in the church and talks about what males can do what females can do so even though in Christ there's neither male nor female the distinction exists the reason I'm pointing that out is because in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek but the difference still exists there are still those who grew up Jewish who have the circumcision who have been raised in the Jewish tradition, and there are still Greeks who don't have all those traditions and background and law and all that. And Paul still makes those distinctions because the Jews are still the recipients of unconditional covenants that God has made with the Jews. All too often, people try to eradicate those promises and covenants that were made to Israel by saying, well, now we're in Christ, and there's neither Jew nor Gentile, so that's all taken care of. Mm -mm. The distinctions still exist the same way that the distinction between slave and free man still existed. Nobody ever went, well, I believe in Christ. I'm no longer a slave. Bye-bye now. I don't have to work for you anymore. No, they were a Christ-believing slave, just like you're a Christ-believing male or a Christ-believing female, the same way you're a Christ-believing Jew or a Christ-believing Gentile, the same way that you're a Christ-believing educated person or a barbarian. It's all about Christ, but it doesn't do away with the distinctions. It says that in Christ, we're all one. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's, same word, sperma. You are Abraham's seed. Uh, In the English language, I was always taught that you don't use the same word too often. You try to mix up your words to make it more interesting for the reader. And that's what the NASB translators did. They wrote offspring here for no good reason at all. It's the exact same word, seeds, myrma. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, which makes you heirs according to the promise. So the promise is, through your seed, all the nations of the earth, even Gentiles, are going to be blessed. Christ comes He is the particular seed through whom those blessings are going to get to you. And if you have faith in the finished work of Christ, you are the seed that is being blessed. So that satisfies every aspect of the seed language that was originally used back in the Abrahamic covenant. You're not amazed by that? I'm astounded by this. I'm overwhelmed by this. I can tell I'm boring you. But I I think this is fascinating. I'm just going to read a couple verses, and we're going to call it a morning, and I'll see you in three weeks. Now I say, as long as the heir is still a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he owns everything. But he is under guardians and managers until a date set by his father. So also we while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons the huiothesia, the son placement. He placed us as sons by his own goodness and grace. And as a result, because we are sons, God sent forth that Holy Spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Happy Father's Day. Because we, Fortunate people that we are, we get to go to the God who made everything, the creator of heaven and earth, and we get to call him Dad. And why? Because he placed us as sons. And that's where we will pick up a couple weeks from now. I appreciate Micah. I appreciate Steve being willing to stand here for the next couple of Sundays and uh, I look forward to coming back and hearing what they had to say, because I know this, they're both going to tell you, run to Christ. And as long as they tell you that, they've done their job. So, I'm going to say it again, run to Christ.
0: Thank you